All right. Good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Does it, does it feel a little bit better in here? I think it was getting a little bit warm for a moment. So we're trying to cool you down, trying to cool you down. Hey, it's good to see you. I love these one service Sundays, don't you? Aren't these great? You know, we, we've thought about, honestly, I've actually kicked around um, moving to a one service. But if you look around, it would be really difficult to grow. So uh, we're going to exchange like what we really want uh, for evangelism and reaching more people for Christ. Amen. Anybody on board with that? Anybody cool with that? Okay. So once a month, we, and then we try to sprinkle in a few more so we can have more one service Sundays where we can gather, worship, and, and uh, build community with one another. Um, as Kayla said, welcome to the Sunday School Elementary Classroom this morning. Uh, we are so excited. This week is Vacation Bible School. If you are serving during Vacation Bible School, I want you to come on down. The price is right. Here we go. Come on now, VBS. Let's go. If you're a worker, come on down. You're not gonna. You're not gonna win any money, but come on down. All right, man. This is the A team right here, man. People getting in the trenches for Jesus, loving on kids. This is awesome. This is awesome. So this week is Vacation Bible School. It is the biggest outreach of the year for our church. So many kids, so many teenagers, so many people come to faith in Christ, and so many families get bridged into the life of our church. I got to give it up to our amazing amazing VBS team. Candace, Sharon, Rena, they are killing it, killing it, killing it. Thank you. Can everybody see me? Okay. So here's the deal. I wish I was a little bit taller. Um, thank God I'm not shorter, right? But um, seriously, they have been, or the team has been working since like January. And they put in, people don't know this, they put in hundreds of hours. I mean, it is people, and here's the deal. We have the best VBS in the city of San Diego. We just do. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. And, and listen, I'm not just biased. We have families and kids, people tell us, this is the best VBS in the city of San Diego. I'd put it up against any VBS in the city. Okay, all right. So... We have an amazing team. We have an amazing team of volunteers. And we are just so excited for this week. Now, here's the deal. Since we're on VBS, Caleb is going to hit this at the end. But listen, this week, we don't want, we don't want a feeding of the 5,000 moment where, you know, right now, we are really behind on individual bags of chips, Capri Suns. Uh, candy bags, we prefer non-chocolate candy bags. You can get big bags of candy at Costco, Smart and Final, wherever, but we prefer non-chocolate, okay? We need your help. If you don't deliver, we're going to tell like 10 kids, okay, you get one chip, you get one chip. <laughs> Five kids, okay, you're going to share one caprizan, you get one sip. All right, you're done. No, for real. Seriously, though, you think I'm joking. This is, the, we are really behind. So I need you to go to Costco. I need everyone to go to Costco, smart and final. I want employees to be like, what is going on? Let me tell you about Jesus. Okay. So let's pray for our um, VBS volunteers, our VBS team. Let's pray for the families that are coming this week. This is going to be an incredible week. We are, we're so excited um, for so many lives to be changed. You might be sitting there thinking, gosh, I want to be a part of this. It's not too late. It's not too late. Okay. Talk to Sharon, Candace, Rena, myself. We will get you connected. Obviously, we'll have to do a background check. We'll have to get you dialed in ASAP, but we can, we can make it happen, all right? All right, Caleb's going to hit this at the end. I don't know why I'm hitting all these. Caleb, sorry, buddy. At the end of the service, if you can give us 15 minutes, we have hours and hours and hours of, of prep time to get ready for tomorrow. If I can get like 20, 25 people that can give like 10 minutes, we can knock it out in 10 minutes. Anybody, anybody, anybody can do that for me? All right. Candace is going to be on the patio. You're going to see her. They have a master list. We can bang it out in 10 minutes. It would be amazing. All right. Let me pray. 
I'm a little excited this morning. VBS, here we go. Let's go, man. All right, let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for your church. God, we, we thank you for the message of the gospel and how we can be made right with you. Though we are sinners, we can experience your grace and be forgiven and, and be restored into a relationship with you, God. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful this week to share that gospel message. Not only would we share it with our lips, but we would demonstrate it in our lives, in our, in our actions this week, in front of these kids, in front of the parents. This is a, a, a week of the year where we, you make such a profound impact on, on the hearts of little children and their moms and dads. And God, I just pray for these volunteers, Lord, that you would give them the grace. Lord, give them the patience. Give them patience, Lord. Uh, and, and help us to see every kid uh, with your eyes. Help us to see them with your heart. And, and God, I pray that we would be a, a light, a huge, massive light for the gospel. And, and we pray for so many kids to come to faith in Christ. Give perseverance and strength uh, to all these volunteers, energy uh, to keep up with these kids for five days. God, we thank you for everyone just pulling on the rope. Um, thank you for, for Team Jesus, the church, God. We are so excited about this week. Well, God, we, we, give, we, we give you this week. We pray that you would move in a mighty way. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. All right, let's give it up one more time for all of our volunteers. Amen. Awesome. Man, it's going to be a great week. Okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm giving out, I'm giving out two books. I'm giving out two books. Um, I'm going to do this occasionally to try to get um, books in your guys' hands. And it's a way for me to highlight some different authors. Um, so this book is called Tell Someone. It perfectly ties into our Vacation Bible School theme and my message this morning. Tell someone you can share the good news. You can share the good news. You don't have to be a missionary. You don't even have to be a pastor. You just be a Christian. You share the good news, and God will use you. All right, so I got two books. Here's the deal. Before you raise your hand, if you want the book, you have to promise me that you're going to read it. If you're not going to read it, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand and don't take the book. Because if you, if you take this book and you don't read it, shame on you. All right? So anybody, anybody in this section want this book? Raise your hand. Okay, no one wants to tell anyone about Jesus. That's great. You know what? Forget you. Bunch of heathens. What about this section? Okay, I saw firsthand on the chambers. There you go. Ricardo, bring this to honor right here. All right. This is the godly, spiritual, Jesus-loving section. But you know what? I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to give you a second chance. Come on. Somebody want it? Okay, guess not. Y'all are going to hell. All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we, you're going to read it? Okay, you're going to read it. There you go. It's by Greg Laurie. You know I love you. Not as much as Jesus. No, I love you. I think maybe I would, the pressure was too great. You have to read it. Everyone's like, I don't know about time. <laughs> Anyways, so read the book. I'm going to be giving out books occasionally, most likely on our One Service Sundays. Different books. I got a few books already in mind that I want to give to you. And um, just a way to kind of, you know, encourage us to read and be leaders and learn and grow and all that good stuff. All right, you guys ready? Here we go. Pull out your message notes. We're going to talk about evangelism. Being a witness for Christ, perfect theme, perfect tie-in today since we're moving into uh, Vacation Bible School. Pull out your, mo uh, your notes and, and turn to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at the, the Great Commission, some of Jesus' final words. We know that when he rose again from the grave, he spent 40 days, 40 days speaking, you know, uh, performing miracles, talking to people. And, um, and so here we are, Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16 to verse 20. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So this was like a week later uh, after he rose again from the grave. And, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. 
but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, that's what makes you unique as a follower of Christ. God's with you. God's with you. Wherever you go, God is with you. And, and, and God can use you because he's with you. He, he lives inside of you, right? When you get saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. He gives us this, this unfailing promise, right? I am with you always, not just a few moments here and there, always, every day, 24-7, to the end of the age. He said, listen, I'm with you when everything finally comes to an end. You know, if someone was on their deathbed and they were giving their last final words to you, would you pay attention? If someone wrote down their last wishes in a will, would you read the will? I think everyone in this room would say yes, right? Because final words are lasting words. Final words make a lasting impression. Matthew chapter 28 records for us some of Jesus' final words before he ascends back to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. When you look at, at these few verses, these are the Lord's marching orders. He says, I want you to go share the gospel everywhere. But for many, the great commission has become the great omission. The great omission is the sin of not doing what we know we should do. And we're guilty as believers. There are some things that it's clear God wants us to do this. And are we engaging? Are we living in obedience? James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, one of the pillars of the early church, he, he tells us in James 4, 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You know, we know more than we do. We know we should share our faith and tell others about Jesus, but we make excuses for, for not being bold and daring and caring for lost people. We know we should pray, but our lives are filled with just chaos and, and busyness, and we find it difficult to carve out this spiritual discipline in our lives. We know that we should be a cheerful giver, that God is the owner and I'm the steward and, and I give back to God what he's rightfully, what he's given to me. But we are self-absorbed. We're too selfish. We're, we're stingy to give back to God what belongs to him in the first place. We know we should read the Bible. But the apps are just, are, are, lure us in. The social media apps the Twitter account, the Instagram begs for our attention and, and our affection. Unless the word of God claims your affection, it will not claim your attention. We know more than we do. At times, the heart takes a back seat to head knowledge. We don't need more head knowledge. Now, I just gave away two books, right? Head knowledge is good, right? Reading is good. It's good to learn. It's good to grow, yes, Grow in the grace of, of Christ. Grow in the knowledge of God, right? But sometimes we're so fixated on stats and figures and diagrams and end time spreadsheets. Here's the deal. I don't think we need more here. I think we need more here. I think we need more obedience, more of a, of a change of heart. You know, the greatest motivation is love for God. Actually, the greatest motivation is God's love for you. That's the greatest motivation. That's the motivation of the Christian life. It's not your love for him, it's his love for you. On one occasion, the apostle Paul, he's writing to the church of Corinth, he said, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He said, the love of Christ controls us. If you break that word down, the translation is, it constrains us, it compels us, it controls us. What it means is, it holds us together. It presses us into action. So when you look at Paul's life, 
He's, he's writing to the church of Corinth. This guy's been through a lot. You know, imprisonments, beatings, right, scourgings. I mean, this, this guy has gone through it. How did Paul endure and keep going? Because he said, the love of Christ holds me together. The love of Christ presses me into action. Paul's like, the love of Christ compels me, constrains me, consumes me, controls me. It acts upon me. It drives me forward. Is he saying, I love Christ so much that I have to serve him? Is that what he's saying? No. It's not Paul's love for Christ. It's Christ's love for Paul. What what motivates you to serve God? It's not your love for Christ. It's Christ's love for you. It's what Christ has done for you. That's what should motivate us to live the Christian life. Can I get an amen? Amen. Paul's like, I can't stop serving Christ because he loves me. Because of, what, what, because of what he's done for me. That's a massive motivator for the Christian life. You realize the beauty of the gospel. You see it for what it is. We are so lost. Humanity is broken. Our culture is just, just completely in ruin. But God has provided a way for us to know him. The creator of the universe came to his creation and that by sending his son, Jesus, who is king of kings and Lord of lords, we can be made right with God the Father. That love should motivate us. That love should should cause us to be passionate about Christ. Here's point number one. We need to recognize that people are spiritually lost. You know, the Great Commission is about going and sharing the gospel why do we go? Why do you go? Why, why do we go? We go because we live in a lost world. People need Jesus. Listen, your family, your coworkers, people that you do life with, externally, they act like they have it all together. They're, they give you the appearance that life is just hunky-dory. Everything's great. But if you were able to peer into their soul, you would see loneliness. You would see hopelessness. You would see brokenness. People without Christ, they're searching for meaning. They're searching for purpose, significance. Who am I? Does, does, does life really matter? What's the point of of all of this? And so Jesus says, I want you to go. I want you to go to hurting people. I want you to go to lonely people. I want you to go to broken people. I want you to go to people that, that don't know me because eternity hangs in the balance. The Bible is so clear about life beyond the grave. Now here's the deal. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of heaven. He spoke about heaven. Now, we don't know, we don't really have a lot of the details about what heaven's going to be like. I think there's reasons for that, right? Um, To some degree, heaven is a mystery. We we know a little bit about it uh, between the biblical authors, but there is so much that hasn't been revealed to us, and I think there's reasons why. On the flip side... There's another eternal, everlasting place that Jesus talked about more than any other biblical writer. Actually, if you combine all of the biblical authors together, Jesus spoke more on the subject of hell than they did. Heaven and hell. Hell is a forever place. Now, here's what's going to happen you're, you're going to engage in conversations with people that are going to deny hell. They're going to erase hell. They're going to say, no, hell is, not real, uh, hell is not a real place. And here's what they're going to try to do. They're going to try to concoct their man-made arguments to get you to believe that, oh, a loving God would not do that. 
And so they, 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 they're, they're going to try to convince you, no, 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 the Bible, you know, it's archaic, it, you know, Jesus didn't mean it that way, you know, whatever, right? Here's the deal. Jesus was very clear about heaven being an eternal home for those who place faith in Christ and hell a forever place. Those who don't know Christ will be banished from the presence of God and they will suffer everlasting punishment. In 2003, there was a research group a research group discovered 64% of Americans expect to go to heaven when they die. But less than 1% think they might go to hell. Hell is a real place. Jesus taught about it. Jesus speaks of eternal fire and punishment as the final abode of the angels and human beings who have rejected God. He says that those who give in to sin will be in danger of the fire of hell. The word Jesus uses for hell is Gehenna, a valley in which the piles of, of garbage were daily burned as the corpses of those without families who could bury them. It was a, a, a trash dump where the trash was burned and, and corpses, people, their bodies were burned because they didn't have family to give them a decent burial. In Mark 9, 43, Jesus speaks of, of a person going to hell, Gehenna, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is referring to the maggots that live in the corpses on the garbage heap. When all the flesh is consumed, the maggots die. Jesus is saying, however, that the spiritual decomposition of hell never ends. And that is why their worm does not die. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He is speaking to his disciples. They're going to be martyred for their faith. Some of them will, will be tortured, sawn in half, filleted, burned alive. And yet he says that what they're going to experience is a picnic compared to hell, clearly for Jesus, hell was a real place. Since he said that after judgment day, people would experience it in their bodies. Hell is a place not only of physical, but also of spiritual misery. Jesus constantly depicted hell as painful fire and outer darkness, a place of unimaginable terror, terrible misery and, and unhappiness. He spoke about hell more than anyone else. And if he did, and if he's God, then the truth about hell is crucial and important truth. Virtually all commentators and theologians believe that the biblical images of fire and outer darkness are metaphorical. Since souls are in hell right now without bodies, how could the fire be literal physical fire? I want you to hear this. Even Jonathan Edwards pointed out that the biblical language for hell was symbolic, but he added, when metaphors are used in scripture about spiritual things, they fall short of the literal truth. The reality will be far worse than the image. What then are the fire and darkness symbols for? They're vivid ways to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God. Someone said that darkness refers to the isolation and fire to the distance disintegration of being separated from God. Away from the favor and face of God, people will literally, horrifically, and endlessly fall apart. Isaiah says that, that we're like sheep. We want to go our own way. I think hell is God actively giving people what they have freely chosen, what they really ultimately want. I think hell is locked on the inside. I think um, people want to be the master of their own faith, the captain of their own soul. And so God is banishing people away from his presence. Ultimately, God is giving people what they ultimately want. J.I. Packer writes this, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. But people say, you know, hell, hell isn't fair. Hell isn't fair. 
I mean, people to experience infinite punishment for sin? The Bible tells us that people only get in the afterlife what they have most wanted, either to have God as Savior and Master or to be their own Savior and Master. I want you to hear what C.S. Lewis said. He said this, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. When you think about hell that way, it's scary. Hell is perfectly fair and just because we have sinned against a holy, just, righteous God. And unless you change, unless you turn from sin and place faith in Christ, you'll die in your sin. You'll be excluded from the presence of God for eternity. Tim Keller said this about hell. The doctrine of hell is important because it is the only way to know how much Jesus loved us and how much he did for us. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says that no physical destruction can be compared with the spiritual destruction of hell, of losing the presence of God. But this is exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was forsaken by the Father. In Luke 16, 24, the rich man in hell is desperately thirsty, and on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. The water of life, the presence of God, was taken from him. The point is this, unless we come to grips with this terrible doctrine, we will never even begin to understand the depths of what Jesus did for us on the cross. His body was being destroyed in the worst possible way, but that was a, a flea bite compared to what was happening to his soul. When he cried out that his, that his God had forsaken him, he was experiencing hell itself. But consider, if our debt for sin is so great that it is never paid off there, but our hell stretches on for eternity, then what are we to conclude from the fact that Jesus said the payment was finished after only three hours? We learn that what he felt on the cross was far worse and deeper than all of our deserved hells put together. Here's the deal. Jesus experienced the horrors of hell on the cross so that you would not have to experience it yourself. There was a blazing fire in a forest and there was two men there. And, and, and the forest was just caught up in this fire and it was, it was coming towards uh, their destination. And one guy took matches and began to light these matches and he began to drop them on the ground and he started throwing them on the ground. And the other guy, you know, he's panicking. And he's, what are you doing? And, and the guy who's throwing down the matches, he said, the fire can't burn what's already been burned. The fires of hell can't burn you. Because the fires of hell already burned Jesus. Jesus took the fire for you. He took the fire for me so that we can escape the fires of hell. Point one is that people are spiritually lost without Christ. And this is why Jonathan Edwards, he said, Oh God, stamp eternity upon my eyeballs. Do we have a lost, do we have a burden for lost people? I mean, when's the last time you prayed for someone in your oikos and you said, God, you know what? Please move in their life. Use me to be bold and daring and caring to share the gospel with them. Eternity hangs in the balance. Here's point number two. Allow God to use you. Allow God to use you. Matthew 28, the main focus is not the word go. That gets a lot of the press. It's, it's the verb, make disciples. That phrase, make disciples, is an imperative. In the Greek, it's in the mood of a command. He's not giving us a suggestion. He's not saying, hey, man, you know, if, uh, if you can squeeze it into your schedule, man, that'd be great. No, Jesus is saying, make 
disciples. It is a command. He is commissioning us. It is his last will and testament. A disciple is a learner, a follower of Jesus. The Great Commission is Jesus' plan to change the world. And he does that one person at a time. He uses us. Isn't that amazing? God is not looking to use the brightest, smartest, got it all together type of people. God is looking for people who were available. One of my famous, famous quotes, I've, I've used it over the years, Bertha Smith, she said, if you make yourself available, God will wear you out. If you make yourself available, if you just say like Isaiah said, when Isaiah had this vision of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God, and Isaiah said, here am I, send me. That's a heart of availability. You look at the Great Commission and there's three clear steps. Go, baptize, teach them to observe or teach them to obey. The imperative is not go, it's make disciples. Why is the Great Commission, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, ethnos, why is the Great Commission so great? Because it's found in the, in the two-letter prefix co, the Great co-mission. The mission is a partnership. That's why Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Have you ever thought about your Christian life? You are partnering with God to bring hope to the hurting, to bring good news to the brokenhearted, right? To bring saving, the, the saving news of the gospel to people who, who are searching for spiritual truth. One of our core values is missional living. It simply means being on mission with Jesus, building relationships with others in order to share Christ. When is the last time you were intentional about building a relationship? I like to say evangelism is building a bridge and letting Jesus walk across it. Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Right? Are you building the bridge? Sometimes building that bridge, as my wife says, takes one plank at a time. One plank at a time. But sometimes our mindset, we want this microwave theology. We want, we want this microwave evangelism. You know, we want to we drop someone in the microwave, hit 30 seconds, hit start, bingo, right? It's ready. God saved them. But maybe God's like, no. This person is not going to be microwave. It's going to be a crock pot. And you got to turn it on. And it's got to be slow. And it's got to cook for a long time because I'm working in their life. See, not every person is a green apple. What I mean by that is not every person is ripe for the gospel. There are green apples and red apples. And guess what? In your oikos, you probably have some green apples, but you probably have some red apples. Get after the red apples. Get after those that show some curiosity, maybe about spiritual truth, spiritual conversations. Missional living is, is being the church versus come to church. You know, Jesus wants us to be on mission with him. You know, in my life, I'll just be honest with you. You know, we, we just had a, a, a missions uh, team parent meeting, right? And I shared with the parents, they're sending their teenagers, young adults to Costa Rica on a missions trip. And I shared with them, the first day when we went to Bogota, Colombia, the first day getting paired up with a translator and going to the marketplace and talking to total strangers, I mean, I did that back in the day. Like in high school, I started, I was doing street evangelism, sharing the gospel, you know, in parking lots. And, and over the years, I found that I started doing less and less of that because, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think... Um, yeah, I'm not going to chase that rabbit, but I, I want to chase that rabbit. I think God uses that. I think God uses all approaches. But I do believe that the most effective way for you to share the gospel is in relationships. Right? Sometimes you have to build trust before you can tell truth. Sometimes you have to build that relationship before you can tell them about the greatest thing in your life. So, back to my story. I was telling the parents, you know, first day... I got paired up with a translator, man. It was like, it was hard. The first few conversations, I mean, it was like choppy. It was awkward. I, I, I was, you know, 
I was trying to find my rhythm. I mean, like, I mean, there's no, there's no other way. I was trying to, I just, I started praying, God, please, God, let this not be like this for five days, right? Please, God, just help me, God, because I feel like I am all over the map. But the good news is that God's word never returns void. When you think you're screwing it up, it's smooth sailing. God is using that in people's lives. Okay, why did I just tell you that? I don't know why I just told you that. Yes, this is why I told you that. So listen, we have to be intentional about building relationships with people that don't know Jesus. Your oikos, family, neighbors, coworkers, right? People that God drops into your world. People that are on the front burners of your life. It seems like people are, God's dropping these people on your, the front burner, the front porch, right? And you're like, what's the deal here? Maybe that's a sign. God's like, hey, I want you to build this relationship. You know, what about the person that cuts your hair? Do you see them? Do you see them as someone that Christ died for? Are you investing in them? Are you sharing the gospel with them? That UPS driver, that same UPS driver that drops off your packages, do you, are you building a relationship with them, right? I mean, start thinking, I mean, your favorite restaurant, Starbucks, the person that, you know, serves you those drinks. I mean, they have a name, they have a story. They're loved by God. And God wants you to share the gospel with them. We've all been given an oikos. You know, research shows that 90% of people come to faith in Christ the same way through a relationship. I want, you to, I want you to raise your hand real quick. How many of you came to faith in Christ because of a relationship? I want you to raise your hand. Someone invested in your life. Now, look around. Hands up, hands up, hands up. Look around. Pretty amazing, right? The gospel spreads in relationships. 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Timothy's story may be boring, but guess what? It works. Timothy had a mama and a grandmother that cared for his soul. They invested in his life. Romans 10, 14 and 15, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring, who preach the good news. God uses ordinary people like you to share the extraordinary news of his amazing grace. Here's point number three. Pray for him to, pray for God to move. Pray for God to move. You know what? Prayer works. Prayer works because God works. Listen, God can do in a moment what it will take you to do in a lifetime. When you give that person to God, when you consistently are praying for that person, right? God is moving. And here's, here's the beauty of the, the oikos web. I don't even think we even realize. The people that you have a heart for, for them to know Christ, guess what? They probably have friends and family that are praying for them. They're praying for you. They're praying for someone. Labors in the harvest to take the gospel to the person that you care about greatly. There are people that are praying for that person. You don't even know it. There are other people maybe investing, sharing the gospel with them as you're trying to share the gospel with them. So you see this, this, uh, this beautiful tangle web of oikos relationships and God is orchestrating all of it because he's in the business of changing people's lives. You know, Paul writes to the church of Colossae and he says in Colossians 4.3, at the same time, pray also for us. So Paul's in prison, and he's saying, pray, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Paul's in prison. He's awaiting execution. He asked the church at Colossae to pray that God would open up a door for the word. Here's the amazing thing. Paul's not praying for relief. He's not praying for comfort. He prays for boldness to share the gospel. That should convict us. We're not in prison. We live in a free country. We can gather. We can worship. We, we, can, we can own a, a dozen Bibles. I mean, 
It's amazing. The privilege that we have, we should be like Paul. God, open doors. You know what he's saying? God, open opportunities. Open wide opportunities that I can walk through those doors and I could testify about your grace. Here's point number four, reach out in love. Reach out in love. The great commandment, we looked at it a few weeks ago. Love God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, your, your strength, and love your neighbors yourself. You know, we, we, we know the, the, the old cliche, people don't care what we know until they know we care. You may be sitting here asking yourself these questions. Well, why do we want to reach out in love? You know, why do we want to grow bigger as a church? Aren't we already big enough? Shouldn't we just focus on ourselves? Listen, we need to align our heart with God's heart. Remember the parable of the lost sheep? He left the 99 sheep and he went looking for the one that was lost. The church is focused on the 99. Well, the music is too loud. The music is too slow. The music is not old school enough. It's too new school. The preaching is too long. Anybody tells me he preaches too long, I'm going to preach longer. <laughs> don't, don't tell me my preaching is too long. I'll show you long, Jack. Actually, actually, when the Puritans, when, when the Puritans, they preached, you know what they did? The Puritans, the pastor, the pastors who were Puritans, they would sit on a stool and the congregation would stand, and guess how long they preached for? Hour and a half. We're going to start that next week. I'm going to sit on a stool. You're going to stand the whole time for an hour and a half. No, 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 no. We need to align our, 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 our lives, our heart with, with God's heart. Let's not be focused on the 99. I have to say, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I love our church. I love you. I love our church for lots of reasons. You don't understand what so many pastors go through. Pastors burn out. Pastors get jaded. Pastors commit extramarital affairs, which is on them. No excuse. No excuse. Can't play. No victim card. I'm just kind of giving you the reality. Pastors, man, they get tired. But you know what I found? And I came almost 13 years ago. Okay, the first three years, it was very hard. But after year three, <laughs> after year three, our church has such a sweet spirit of unity. I have found that the people you are committed to the gospel, you have a love for God, you're willing to follow spiritual leadership. I mean, I, I'm not perfect. I make a lot of mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes in 13 years. But people are willing to follow and trust and buy into the vision. I mean, I, I love our church. I love the unity. I love the the you know, the, the heart that's committed to the gospel. I just love the fellowship that we have. Like, there, there's not infighting. There's not power struggles. There's, there's not people, you know, trying to, like, take over. In a lot of churches, pastors, they, they deal with that. They face that. I mean, monthly business meetings. I mean, who wants to do monthly business meetings? When I came to the church, they had a monthly business meeting, and they voted on everything. They voted on the placement of a TV in the lobby. I had a deacon, we moved it. Actually, we took the TV down. I had one deacon look at me and said, you know what? We voted on the placement of that TV. Why did you take it down? And I just took the high ground and was gracious and said, well, you know, people really couldn't see that TV. It was kind of in the corner. And Anyways, people, the church minors, they, they major on the minor. They major on the minor. We need to major on the major, and that is the gospel, right? That is, that is moving forward as a church, family, united. When we are united, we're strong. We're healthy. 
when we're serving together, when we're loving one another, when we're committed to the mission, not committed to our preferences, not committed to our opinions, when we're committed to the mission, that is a God-honoring church. Why do we reach out? Let me give you four ways to reach out in love to a lost and hurting world. Uh, Here's the first one. Reach out in love because we have the greatest news in the world to share. We have the greatest news. You know, cancer is a very real thing. If you were battling cancer and a doctor gave you the cure for cancer, what would you do with that? Would you share it? Would you, I mean, would you go to all the news networks and say, listen, man, I got some news to tell you. I got to tell this to the world. We have the answer to the spiritual problem. And it's Jesus. We have greater news than the cure for cancer. We have the answer, the cure, the cure for our, our sin and the broken relationship that we have with God. Here's the next one. Reach out in love by not sitting in judgment on others. You know, that there's this... Um, there's this common conception about believers. We're better than everyone else. We have all the answers. We're out there to judge everyone. Why? Because we're known more for what we're against than what we're for. Hey, don't get me wrong. I'm against some things. I'm against some things. I got convictions, right? And I'm going to hold the line on the essential uh, beliefs of the Scripture. But when it comes to the gray areas, there's freedom, There's charity, right? There's love for one another. As believers, we shouldn't sit in judgment on other people. Look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Outsiders being those outside the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Paul's saying, listen, it's not my business to judge those outside the church. But see, as believers, we expect non-believers to act just like we are. How can we expect non-believers to act, like, to act like us when they don't have God living within them? So that's right. Come on. I mean, we should not expect lost people to act like saved people. Lost people are lost. God hasn't transformed their hearts. They haven't allowed the, the scriptures to change their worldview. Right? to reshape them and remold them into the image of Christ. We need to reach out in love by building friendships with those who need Jesus. You know, one of the best ways, Jesus, one of the best ways to build a friendship is a biblical method that I love to call throw a party. Did you know that Jesus, his ministry was done at a lot of parties? He started his public ministry at a party, a wedding. And guess what? Have you ever thought about this? He was invited to the wedding. He must have been a pretty cool dude, right? I mean, you're only a a cool, nice guy if you get invited to the party, right? Okay, there's all those. Sometimes there are those crazy uncles that get invited to the party, but I'm just saying. He started his public ministry at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, right? Jesus was the original party animal, the religious leaders of the day, the, the Pharisees. They called him a glutton, a drunk, he overate, overdrank. He's always at parties. The problem is the longer you're a Christian, the less non-Christian friends you have. See, Christians tend to fall into one of two extremes, either imitation or isolation. Imitation, I'm just going to blend in. I'm going to blend in. I'm just going to be just like the world. Isolation, I don't want to be polluted by the world, so I'm going to distance myself. I'm going to distance myself from those people, but those people used to be you. Jesus, he got his hands dirty in ministry. I mean, he rubbed shoulders with sinners. He hung out with people that were broken, broken spiritually, and he he drew them to himself. As believers, we need to model that that compassion and that love that Christ had. You know, evangelism is, is, is dirty. It's hard work. It's not easy. When I say evangelism, I'm talking being a witness, sharing the gospel, the good news. Do you remember the story of the paralytic? And, and he had a, uh, some buddies that wanted to get him to Jesus. He wanted to get to Jesus. 
And what did they do? They got their friend, their buddy on the top of the roof. Jesus was having this theological conversation with the religious people of the day. And they began to break through the roof. It was like a thatched roof. They broke through that. Can you imagine Jesus having this conversation and pieces of the roof falling all over the floor? Dirt, you know. And, and, and all of a sudden, they lower their buddy into the middle of the room. And, and Jesus heals that man. This guy gets up and walks. And then Jesus tells him, your sins have been forgiven. Evangelism is hard work. Those friends, they were intentional. They made a decision. No matter what it's going to take, man, we're getting our friend to Jesus. That's the kind of mindset intentionality, passion that we need to have. No matter what it takes, no matter what the cost, we're going to get people to Jesus. Here's the last one. Reach out in love by telling your story. Everyone has a story. You know, salvation is not about you. It's about God. But your story is his story. And his story is one of redemption and second chances. It's about scandalous grace. Tell your story. Don't be ashamed of your story. Don't be ashamed of what God has done in your life. The most effective way to let other people know about the great things that God can do in their lives is to tell them the story of what God has done in your life. Share what God has done in your life to those who are lost. As believers, we need to remember the great promise. Matthew 28, 20, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is a promise of his presence. When we share the good news, Christ is saying, I'm with you. I'm in you. I'm in front of you. I'm behind you. I'm next to you. Jesus doesn't just say, you know, I'll be with you today and tomorrow. No, he says, I'll be with you forever to the end of the age. This nugget of truth should give us boldness. It should give us daring faith. It should nudge us in the right direction. It should give us a quite quiet confidence in the work and power of the Holy Spirit living within you. No matter what happens, he has you. He's in you. He's with you. You may face rejection. You may face anger and hostility. Jokes may be hurled your way. Family may disown you. Friends may turn their back on you. Your spouse at times may think you're crazy, but no matter what happens here on earth, he has you forever. Amen? So listen, when we gather, we gather as the church. The people of God are the church. When we leave this campus, we are leaving and we're going into a a lost and hurting world. We're going out as, as little lights. We're going out as the church to share the message of God's grace with those who desperately need it. Be bold, be daring, and be caring. Because Jesus said, I'm with you always until the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray.